there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Drake Hills, a rising star soccer journalist for the Tennessean in Nashville. We've had some great guests lately, including Ada Hegerberg, Raphael Honigstein, and Henry Winter. I also encourage you to listen to my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content now. Now, here's my interview with Drake Hills. Our guest now is a rising star journalist in the soccer space. Drake Hills covers Nashville SC and the soccer beat for the Tennessean. He co-hosts the Plugged In podcast on soccer. You can find him on Twitter at Live Life Drake, and he joins me now from Nashville. Drake, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, man, it's a it's a nice day to make a debut. I appreciate you having me, Grant. Um, I know it's it's been a while since we saw each other. You know, that was uh, as we I think we were talking about off air, one of the penultimate fun events uh, before uh, the pandemic hit hard. So it's it's good to see you again and good to talk with you. Yeah, likewise. I was out in L.A. at the MLS Media Day almost exactly a year ago, mid-January of 2020, which literally feels like 10 years ago to me at this point. (laughs) But uh, you've been killing it for the last year down in Tennessee uh, with a team that has done better than expected. I want to get to that in one second. But first off, we're recording this on Tuesday, coming out Thursday your thoughts on Christian Pulisic's GQ photo shoot? Oh, man. Hey, I know this is a popular notation here, and I know it's a, a popular joke, but, I mean, it's a, it's a Maroon 5 dedication right there. I mean, like, I called it a Maroon 5 aside demo. It's like a, like a mixtape cover. You know, it's not even an album cover, a mixtape cover. You know, he's got the Adam Levine, you know, sleeve tats. I mean, I didn't see that, but I also... I need to know who his barber is because he's like straight out of Southwest London, like born in the late 90s. Like he has the proper look, you know, and because I mean, just like you, I mean, I saw Christian as, you know, the young guy, you know, Hershey PA, you know, had the nice Caesar cut, you know, no tattoos, no chains. (laughs) All of a sudden he's got better sneakers than me. And I'm not saying I have like a solid sneaker connection or collection, but like, yeah, he's he's over the moon now. Like, he's doing big things out there in West London. It is. It's fascinating to me to see the evolution of not just a personality, but um, a persona in the public space. Because I've been covering Christian since he was probably 16 years old. So six years. And people change over time. It's just like the the natural Christian, I feel like, is pretty withdrawn. He's a soccer guy. And so I think he actually, when he's dialed in on giving interviews about the sport itself, in my experience, he's he's really thoughtful. I don't know how much he wants to be a rock star. And and that might be the case, especially after this GQ. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't go rock star far. Like I, I don't think that he'll probably be as flashy as maybe this uh as we like to say, the mixtape cover will will put out at first glance. But I will say, though, I think that he's in this small little pocket of he's not like a lot of the American soccer, uh, you know, godfathers and legends that we've been used to. Right. I mean, he's not the guy who's going to be the 
the alpha male who's tough and is really vulgar with his language or really aggressive, but he still plays the game and he plays hard. But he's also not that pretty boy, poster boy guy that maybe we might see in Europe a lot. He's this, he's, as you mentioned, like he knows when it's go time. And I think he's a growing soccer professional in his own right. And you know, whether that be he has a couple of Cuban links on in the off season and, you know, he decides to turn it on as soon as camp starts in July. I mean, so be it. But I think it's pretty cool, though. And I didn't see it coming, if, I, if we're being honest. I mean, in the big picture, I, I hope everyone in, out there enjoys dunking on this uh, this week, because <laughs> I actually think people are pretty excited about the U.S. men's national team right now. And uh, and, and Christian's probably not going to have anything to worry about moving forward here, even even after this. Um, I, I want to move on to, to Nashville SC. I mean, this was a team that got all the way to the final eight in the MLS playoffs, became, I think, the first expansion team to win more than one playoff game since, like, Chicago in 1998. Why do you think Nashville SC was more successful than we expected they would be last season? Well, first I would say it's the fact that they left it up really to the players. Like I think there's a there's a situation and maybe a trend in the recent MLS expansion, and you see it starting with the coach. I mean, maybe start with Tata Martino in Atlanta, or obviously Bob Bradley in LA, or obviously with Heath in in, in Minnesota, and so on and so forth. There is this trend of this again alpha male manager who's responsible for taking one thing that's at zero and trying to get to 100 as soon as you can. And it's not that Gary Smith isn't the guy who's not going to get in your face and he's not, you know, he's certainly got the Cockney accent who's going to make sure you know what you did wrong. Um, He's going to tell you. And he's certainly been one that is a preparation expert. I think Mike Jacobs and some of the other GMs that I've spoken to have credited Gary, even with his Colorado Rapids days, going back to the late 2000s, early 2010s, as some guy who really knows how to prepare, especially for, you know, whether it be for knockout round matches, he knows how to prepare for for one match uh, situations. But I think Nashville's key was allowing guys like, and I'm sure you've heard it a lot, is Dex McCarty, but that's one guy, obviously, for you know, 15 years, right? I mean, he's been the guy who's with the most MLS experience, but also Walker Zimmerman, right. even the quieter guys like Dave Romney and Dan Lovitz, who probably aren't going to be at the forefront of, you know, whether it be the media, um, you know, any type of marketing. They're not going to be the guy like Walker Zimmerman is, this fan favorite, if you will. But they have just as much of a voice in the locker room. Um and or lead by example, like Dave. Um, Dave's not going to be the loudest guy, but he's going to lead just as much. He played in every match in 2020 for Nashville um, after, you know, sitting on the bench for the most part at, at, at StubHub or SeatGeek or, you know, they, they changed. They pretty much changed the stadium rights. I mean, I'm, I, I grew up at being StubHub Center. So but um, yeah, he was with L.A. Galaxy and, and obviously um, was there for five years, still trying to claim his name and then he does it in Nashville but he's also been responsible for growing this new system that started from scratch so I think that's been the key is that this uh, this uh, player accountability or player first team structure allowed the team to focus on what it knows that it can do best 
And then it used that to knock off Toronto, which, you know, was largely Pozuelo's probably worst game of the season. And I think that wasn't by accident. And I think yeah. uh, I think the midfield of Nashville had something to do with that. And and credit to the to the to the back four. But I think that was a all out Nashville performance. It, it seems like Nashville really has an identity, which not every team does. Not every expansion team had last year. Um, and they're hard to break down. Like, how how have fans responded to that? And and just how have fans responded in general to to having an MLS team in the Nashville area? Yeah, I think it's funny when you talk about the two expansion teams from last year. And one, their DP showed up, and especially at the end of the season. And the other team, their DPs didn't. And I think it was the crescendo of Randall Leal, this this Costa Rican winger who's, you know, came into the national team in his early 20s. He's 23, 24 now, and he's coming to this team that obviously didn't have a predecessor. And so here he is filling in shoes that have never been worn before. And he starts, you know, top bins from 30 yards in, you know, playoff games and uh, at, the, at the end of of the MLS season. And so, I think that's certainly been a key to you know, how Nashville has identified with this new team. You know, this team that is including, yes, they are foreign players, but so do the Preds. So what's different between the Preds and, and, and Nashville C? Well, I think that Nashville C is obviously uh, their top players, and whether it's Randall Leal or Hani Mukhtar, they have a little bit of personality to them. And I think it's starting mm-hmm. to come out a little bit, especially with Randall, a guy who... Um, you know, people may not think that he speaks much English, but he actually does. And he has a personality and he has a confidence uh, just as Hani does. And they want to be the best players that they can be. And they want to be Nashville's best players. And so I think Nashville fans appreciated this. Yeah, this humility and this desire to want to fit into the to the already existing culture that Nashville is, but also to be something that probably hasn't existed in Nashville before. And it's this balance between pizzazz and tradition. And I think that's how the team on the field reflected as well, because the team and I talked with Gary in December, Gary Smith about this. And you know, he said, yeah, oftentimes I think we rely too much on this structure that I designed and that the team formulated throughout the early months of the season. But I truly think this is his words is I truly think and I want this team to show a little bit more of that swagger, a little bit more of the pizzazz and create art with, you know, your role in the team. And so I think that's what Randall did. I think at the end of the year, that's what, what Hani Mukhtar did as well. And we'll see with uh, Jandra Cadiz. We'll see what he does in 2021. Obviously kind of up in the air when this next season's going to start right now. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to ask you though about sort of the stadium situation. I know it's not supposed to open until 2022. It looks amazing in terms of the drawings. Um, like, is that on schedule still? And how do you think that will change the equation of how people consume that team in Nashville? Yeah, I think because currently I think it lacks intimacy, the relationship between Nashville. And obviously the pandemic season, your first season where, you know, you couldn't have fans in back in this back in the Nissan Stadium anyway until October. So you're you're missing out on games against Miami. You're missing out on, you know, other top matchups to see top players. Um, And so I think 
that relationship lacks the intimacy. So I definitely know that's what's going to come into place once the stadium does open. But yes, it is on schedule. It will uh, be available mid-May 2022. And uh, there's been some some interesting uh, some points along the way. <laughs> this this Coyote story, which is the, now the mascot for the club. Which I di- I didn't see that coming. There was a mass. There was a, a coyote that pulled up in the middle of a convention center in downtown Nashville. All of a sudden, at the construction site of the stadium, there's this coyote that decided to park and move in on the stadium site. So that's why they called uh, Tempo the Coyote their their new mascot uh, because they had a coyote that decided to post up and and call uh, Nashville SC Stadium home, but. Yeah, I mean, I certainly know that, you know, look, that's going to be a big plus for not just uh, Nashville SC, but for Nashville in general. That's a that's an area of Nashville that I think a lot of folks outside of the city and maybe aren't familiar with uh, Middle Tennessee aren't familiar with. But, um, you know, that the fairgrounds is there and they used to host NASCAR races. They host short track races. They host, um, you know, Challenge Cup races, Sprint Cup races. There's there's this tradition of, of Nashville sporting events happening there and you know whether it be someone like you know chase elliott who you know was well obviously well known in the racing um, you know racing i guess fandom but Mm -hmm. uh he he grew up pretty much racing on that track and um so there's a little bit of history over there going back to the 50s all the way uh into the 80s and 90s so there's history there and wedgwood houston is this tug and pull on Broadway and kind of where everyone, then the residential side of where everyone lives in this sporting tradition. So it's right in the middle there. So it, it certainly will, will have a big impact on Nashville. Looking forward to that. Um, in terms of the season itself for 2021, knowing that labor talks are ongoing in MLS, knowing, <laughs> yeah, again, for like the third time in, in a year and a half, knowing the state of the virus, which remains unpredictable as far as the future is concerned. When do you think we'll see the start of the MLS season in 2021? I've just been thinking it's the end of March. If there's actually going to be uh, a true agreement, that's not going to have little caveats of not being ratified by one side or the other, or there's going to be another force majeure clause being put in. I mean, I would, it, it, it seems as if that would be fitting, but I have very little confidence in that. It's almost as if, you know, I'm working a little bit more behind the scenes on still getting, still getting to know players. Because that's been the big thing for me is, look, I get it. Every reporter that comes on a beat is going to have to spend time to get to know players and, and staff and folks who work at the club. But, you know, when you literally had two weeks of the season, I was down in Tampa uh, for a couple of weeks of preseason as well. So if you combine the two, that's a month of having FaceTime with players where there aren't cameras around and there isn't a recorder out and just talking to guys, talking to guys like Hani Mukhtar and, and and getting a chance to know you know some of the players. I mean, that's, that's what I'm focused on right now. And that's probably going to be what I'm going to be doing for a long time, just based off of, you know, the stories that have been coming out as to what, Bob Foose is saying and what Commissioner Garber is saying and you know how the, obviously each each side is is claiming to be. Um, 
I, I really doubt that it'll come before that. There might be an April season. There might be a May season. I think in markets like Chicago and Boston might appreciate that, and Minnesota too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely know that that's going to be um, an extended part of, uh, I guess, an extension of, of what we saw last year <laughs> because it, there was a bit of a, a stalemate there, and this one is just going to grow. But I'm taking the time to just make sure that I get to know Nashville a little bit better. Now, this is the MLS offseason right now. What other sports have you been covering at the Tennessean, and how do you juggle those with your soccer duties? Yeah, it's been quite interesting because I'm doing features on Alistair Johnston and how he wants to you know, be a part of Team Canada, not just for World Cup qualifiers going forward, but obviously for, for Olympic qualifiers and um you know, getting a chance to know a rookie that, that you know, starting from his from the bottom and, and growing with him in his career. But at the same time, I'm on Zoom calls with Jerry Stackhouse, uh, <laughs> you know, and talking about Vanderbilt basketball. And, you know, Jerry's a cool guy. You know, he's this he's this professional uh, expert in, in terms of knowing what to do and what to say when the camera and lights are on. But he's also the competitor. He's also the guy who. He'll give you a straight answer, and he, he obviously there's Scottie Pippen Jr. So you've got two NBA names, or at least a second generation of an NBA great, um, on one team and covering one program. So that's what I've been covering recently: Vanderbilt men's basketball, and I, just as I did last year, I covered a little bit of Titans, okay. um, which is also interesting in itself. It's almost like night and day. Um, Obviously, Nashville C played its home games at Nissan Stadium uh, downtown Nashville, which is the home of the uh, Tennessee Titans in the NFL. And, you know, <laughs> the press box is like, you know, it's it's good food, but it goes from like 20 people to like 80 in like two days. Yeah. And so uh, it's 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 cool getting a chance to know other other guys and getting a chance to cover other teams um, in other sports. But a part of me does miss the soccer, even if it's just like college or or preps or you know covering what clubs are up to. I did a feature on how uh, youth clubs are managing the pandemic, obviously financially uh, being one point. Um, but I'm also working on this podcast that I still have brewing up, which is really telling the tale of soccer heritage in Middle Tennessee. Uh, hmm. I wrote a story in uh, just a little bit after Thanksgiving of 2020 about soccer heritage in Tennessee and talking about how, you know, Hungarians during the Cold War fled uh, into Nashville in the late and mid 1950s and started what is what is called the Nashville Internationals. And they were playing these mini teams like Fort Campbell, Kentucky and like other military bases and playing against Vanderbilt University club soccer fanatics, you know, just for just for the giggles, you know, and then it moved to obviously teams being founded in the 80s and 90s. The Nashville Diamonds played in what is now the USL, um, mm -hmm. but played in you know, oh, just one season before they you know, had to fold. And then obviously the Nashville Metros, who you know, obviously there, there's there's guys who maybe MLS people might know, maybe they might not. Um, so I definitely want to disclose those names. If you haven't, if you haven't been able to know or learn a little bit about the Nashville Metros, I certainly encourage 
them to do because, I mean, it has a little bit of MLS ties to it. Guys who went on to play in MLS. Um, and it also has a it has a reason as to why Nashville soccer has grown in these past five to 10 years because of what you know, these guys did in the 90s and early 2000s. They didn't leave. They stayed in Nashville. And so they've grown the game collegiately. They've they've grown the game uh, at the youth level. And I think I think that's what's gotten the, the, the fandom and the interest in having an MLS team come to reality. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Drake Hills. And I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or the Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports in English and Spanish, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I'm always fascinated by hotbeds for soccer in in the U.S. And I think sort of an underrated hotbed is the Middle Tennessee area, Memphis as well over the years. There's some really established soccer ties, roots that have been there for a long time. So I'm glad you're writing about that. I mean, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, too, was uh, the Vanderbilt women's soccer team in Nashville has a goalkeeper, Sarah Fuller, who made history, place kicking for the football team. But she also won an SEC title with Vanderbilt. She, you know, we're recording this a day before the inauguration. She's going to be at the inauguration. Have you had <laughs> any contact, any co- done any coverage of her? I haven't. I have not, unfortunately. And, you know, that was something that I, I regret a little bit because, uh, you know, Vandy soccer has this interesting culture to it. Obviously, unfortunately, back in 06, that's when the men's program was was shut down. Um, but the women's program has done its best. You know, obviously, uh, there they're, they're are players in the NWSL now. Um, and, and Sarah Fuller is a player, in at least as a goalkeeper, who helped upset Arkansas in the SEC tournament down there in Pensacola. And so that was, that was something big, not just for soccer but for Vandy sports as you know it's uh it's a little bit trouble over there to get wins and and, and if you're not Vandy baseball but um yeah it, it was quite interesting to see because you know you sometimes as a local writer you get so immersed into what's going on immediately around you and then you just wait a little bit and you see how the ripple effects starts to start to come and as soon as there was even a murmur about her practicing with Vander, Vanderbilt football, it was like this big boom. And so it was great to see um, nationwide that the response that she 
And she garnered was awesome. I want to ask about sort of your journey to get to where you are right now. Here's what I know. I know that you grew up in Augusta, Georgia and the San Diego, California area. You went to undergrad at the University of Oregon, and then you got your master's in journalism at the prestigious Medill School at Northwestern. Did you lead me through that journey? <laughs> yeah, of course. And so the the key similarity and probably the only similarity uh, between San Diego and Augusta is, <laughs> you know, it's not golf as many may, people might say uh, because of the pretty cool golf courses. Obviously, you got the, the Buick Classic at Torrey Pines, um, which I used to drive by a lot in San Diego. But obviously, it's not and nowhere near what Augusta National is and, and the Masters in Augusta. Um, so I guess taking it back, you know, I grew up actually down the street from Augusta National. Um, so I was, you know, if you were looking at the main entrance, I'm actually two lights or was two lights down, uh, down the road. And, um, I grew up, you know, passing the course uh, every day. And I get, I used to get a kick out of seeing these cracks of the green covering of the fence, um, Mm. that, you know, obviously shaded everyone on the outside from looking in and seeing what the course was at and seeing what the course looked like. There used to be these little crevices or actually you got to see what the course looked like. And hmm. so on the way to school every morning, I used to get a kick out of, you know, finally be able to every, you know, half of second being able to see what the course was. Um, and but going back to the similarity, it's not golf. It's actually military. Um, huh. So my both of my parents are coming from military backgrounds. My dad was in the Marine Corps. My mom is a Navy brat. Uh, she's lived in. London. She's lived in Naples, Italy. Um, she was born in in Connecticut, but obviously grew up uh, half and half between Augusta and San Diego. Um, my grandfather was in the Navy, and uh, he was doing work between a base called Thirty Second Street and also Coronado, which is obviously famous for uh, naval aviation, uh, SEAL teams, and the like. And uh, my dad was stationed in San Diego in the Marine Corps as well. So. You know, I went to elementary school a little bit in Augusta, but I actually grew up uh, for the most part in San Diego. And that's uh, when I actually started really committing to the game of soccer. Um, hmm. There's a club called PQ Premier in this this suburb of uh, called Rancho Penasquitos. And so that was the club around me They're They've now gone on to being an outshoot of what's called FC San Diego. Um, but I used to grow up around those guys and a lot of even NWSL players like uh, Haley Harbison, who plays for the North Carolina Courage. You know, we grew up together a Hmm. little bit. Um, So there was actually a little bit of a soccer hotbed in my immediate suburb. But, you know, also uh, I ended up going to school with Corey Baird uh, with RSL and obviously with L.A. now. Um, He and I went to Cathedral Catholic High School together for a little while before he went to residency. Um, And between those two pillars, that's when soccer became or make or break thing. Like I was, you know, Fox soccer was my thing. Like I was watching replays of, you know, Premier League games. I was, you know, obviously was training with whether it be PQ Premier or other their teams, other whether it be rec teams or whatever. Um, you know, throughout the 2000s, and when I was growing up in San Diego, that's what I was doing. And there came a time, unfortunately, where, you know, my parents sat me down and said, hey, you know, you've got to, AAU basketball team here that says, you know, we only want $75 a month, you know, to have you have you play. 
and your soccer team wants thirteen hundred. We can't we can't do that. Um, By which I have to take some responsibility. I wasn't the best student coming up either. So (laughs) that was probably what made them want me to choose in the first place. But, you know, that really that that's how my soccer career ended when I was about 12 years old Um, in terms of like, you know, club soccer or organized soccer. So I actually haven't been playing um, and didn't get a chance to play as long as I had hoped. Um, But what stuck to me and what still drives me as a writer is not necessarily, you know, going to stadiums and getting a chance to talk about uh, obviously what's going on in the game. But what still drives me as a soccer writer is being in a position where I get a chance to learn about different people from all over the world and who speak different languages and have different uh, tastes in music and fashion, uh, getting a chance to travel, right? Um, And obviously me being a a black man, I get a chance to learn more about my diaspora that I can, you know, for the most part, only see in books and some research papers. And of course, the NBA and the NFL have their, uh, whether it be there's some, obviously a Nigerian presence, there are some Western African presences in in the NBA and of course in the NFL, but it doesn't have the platform that soccer has, whether in MLS, USL, or in Europe and, and elsewhere in other professional leagues, and both on the men's and the women's side. And so, and that's what I've appreciated the most is being able to learn more about my diaspora, being able to get a chance to know more about the Francophone countries in the world. And what about maybe some of the Anglophone countries in the world. I've been to Ghana three times and I got a chance uh, to watch, which is a big club, uh, Accra Hearts of Oak is, yeah. is one of a massive club, obviously. And Nashville's David Akam is, is one of is one of their, their proofs of you know, guys who are coming from their local area that make it to MLS or that make it to Europe. Um, and I'm sure Jonathan Mensah is, is, is a big fan of the Ghanaian Premier League as well, but I've gotten a chance to, have three stops in Ghana and really have a, a actual a residency there and get a chance to immerse myself uh, at the intersection of the African diaspora and soccer and the culture that it brings. And so I, I've, that's what I love about the game. And I, even though I wasn't able to play soccer as a, as a high schooler or even in college, you know, I still use my platform as an aspiring writer to get a chance to know other black players from all over the world. That's really cool. You went to University of Oregon. You and John Strong are probably the two yes, most sir. prominent <laughs> alums of the University of Oregon in American soccer media. John's doing great <laughs> stuff, obviously, calling games for Fox Sports. Um, did you have any contact with him when you were there or since? I actually, I think I tweeted at him or DM'd him once. I think it was the former. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember there was one event and my buddy, Sean Meadow, who is a... Uh, I know Sean. He's a, yeah, yeah. Sean Meadow. He's my guy, man. He and I would uh, cover Oregon soccer together. Obviously, mm-hmm. they have a, a women's team. And um, if there's any Portland Thorns fans uh, in, in listening to this, it's uh, Marissa Everett all the way, um, who was a product of Oregon soccer. But um, he and I would cover games. And I just remember he and I talking and he talked about how... Uh, he got a chance to like go up to Portland and um, get a chance to learn about you know the, the 
the thorns and the timbers. And then I believe I, I'm not sure if John had came down to campus or if Sean had came up to Portland. But there was this this uh, group that was compiled of aspiring journalists on our campus from Oregon. And they got a chance to to talk with John. And I had missed it by like one day. Oh, no. um, and that obviously like, you know, knowing John, he's just this he's this bright guy that everybody likes. And I knew about him, obviously, because you know, I wanted to see someone who was maybe ahead of me in the in the Oregon pipeline that's doing great soccer coverage. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance. But, you know, he and I have talked since. Uh, but you know, I think that's one thing that I want to do for Oregon students is, you know, hey, if you want to do anything that involves soccer, like hit me up because I'm still planning once this pandemic ends to make visits to campus. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that's one thing that. Uh, I like is this cl- close knit part of soccer media is being able to connect with, you know, guys and gals who have done it before you or, or, or graduated before you. And you get a chance to learn the ropes from someone who's just a, as passionate about the game as you are. I am glad you mentioned Sean Meadow because I, I know Sean. He's working in media in Southern California right yeah. now, I think. Yeah, yeah he's in he's the L.A. On... in the Orange County area. Yeah. So that, University of Oregon, not doing too badly there in the soccer space. The, um <laughs> Now, you go to Northwestern Medill School. This is viewed as maybe the best journalism school in the country in terms of um, who they've produced over the years. What was that experience like? And I know you also did, uh, you spent some time with a Northwestern travel program in London, and that sounded interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. It was certainly a a culture change because Oregon is very much a political put yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, it's largely known for its investigative reporting and its news and or even arts and culture. A lot of uh, you know writers come out of there that are maybe on that sector. Sean and I are trying to hold down the sports for it and soccer for it. But Northwestern, obviously, I went from you know getting a chance to learn from investigative reporters to taking classes with Jay Adande and uh, Missy Isaacson, who obviously... Um, whether it's the LA Times or JA covering the Lakers and Shaq and Kobe to, you know, Missy being able to cover, you know, the Bulls. And you saw both of them obviously on uh, uh, with with a great, uh, I think that was a pandemic excuse. Everyone to get a chance to sit on their couch and watch the greatest 10 uh, part documentary of the, of the Chicago Bulls. I mean, you get a, got a chance to see them both. And mm-hmm. I was happy to be able to soak up as much as I could from them as instructors um, obviously, Missy Eisen having so much experience writing for uh, Tribune and knowing about the Sun-Times and pretty much just sh- Chicago sports in general. Um, and you know what? It was awesome to be able to establish or reestablish, I should say, the soccer culture in Medill. Um, because, you know, obviously, you know, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stage School and many mm-hmm. others who, who have gone through the Medill uh, gauntlet, uh, we got a chance to have a podcast and start a podcast during the World Cup year. So that was awesome. And, and being able to know and talk about what's going on in Russia. Um, but one thing was missing, obviously, as you mentioned, was the actual embedding of mm-hmm. you know, soccer culture on its homeland and getting a chance to talk about the things, whether it be African diaspora, whether it be fan culture, uh, whether it be uh, fashion and marketing in the game of soccer that's different. Um, and so in February 2019, myself and my 
co-hosts of SoccerCast Chicago, Alex Campbell and Nick Kenyon. Um, we got a chance to go over with a group of nine uh, with an instructor by the name of Candy Lee, and she took us over to London for about 10 days. And you know, we hopped from the den at Millwall to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, yeah, that was actually our first game, Millwall and Sheffield Wednesday, midweek fixture, um, (laughs) was a very boring match, and I don't remember anyone scoring, but you know what, I was actually very, like, on edge with uh, the, the, who I look like going into the den, and, and if you've ever been there, like, we didn't just take a taxi or take a cab, like, to the front door, like, we went on this underpass walk like we were just one of the other supporters. Um, And there were no fluorescent lights that I could see. Mm. (laughs) And we were just like walking through neighborhoods. And all of a sudden you see um, you see the den on the horizon. And we went through just like every other fan. We got a chance to experience what it was like as probably, you know, watching one of the more storied clubs in the London area. Uh, And then we moved obviously to Wembley and we saw Spurs and Dortmund in the Champions League. I believe that was round of 16, hmm. um, 2018-2019 season. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously we know what happened with Spurs uh, later that season. I'll get to that because there's a story um, <laughs> because I, I was there. And so that was awesome. Um, but at least the first time I saw Spurs was at Wembley. Um, mm-hmm. And then we went to the Emirates. Uh, we went to uh, tons of stadiums uh, throughout the London nice. area, uh, you know whether it be Chelsea, Fulham, we went everywhere. But the thing that I really enjoyed was uh, for that Champions League match, I actually got a chance to talk with just some everyday average guys from London who um, were black, and I got a chance to talk to them about uh, fan immersion, what it's like to be a black fan at a stadium in in, in an English club match, uh, whether mm. it's Premier League, Championship, League One, League Two, doesn't matter. Um, what was it like? And I got a chance to talk with them. And, and you know what? The funny thing for me, and it's not in a f- or actual funny way, it's a little very peculiar, um, is the immediate uh, step back that they took. Hmm. Because there, there is this uh, interesting and maybe sensitive uh, culture that comes along with being a black fan hmm. in a English know atmosphere of a club because you're you stick out like a sore thumb and it's not the roaring and cheering that you may see in the cup or it's not you know whatever stand that you want to name at a prominent English club you know you're not going to see a lot of black faces and that's that's one a problem but number two it's uncomfortable for those who are not uh, we're not accustomed to that culture mm-hmm. um, and a lot of them were saying, you know, hey, we're just here just to enjoy the match. Like, mm-hmm. we don't want to stir anything up. We don't want any problems. Um, and I thought that was interesting because if you go and talk to any black sports fan in America, I mean, there's always a reason for them uh, going to the game that's more than just, you know, the actual winning and losing of their team. Um, mm-hmm. It's this fan experience that feeds them to want to come, come back. Uh, and so I thought that was quite interesting. And then I saw something else that I'm quite passionate about is um, gentrification Mm -hmm. as far as football is concerned. And I went to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium before it opened 
Mm -hmm. uh, there was still yellow tape that was around it. There were still little mini cranes that were parked and on the dark side and the back side of the stadium. There was literally Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the largest team store I've ever seen at the first level. Across the street, there's a chicken shop. Hmm. And then if I turn to my right, there is, you know, rundown apartments. Hmm. And I thought that was I thought that was very interesting because I wanted to know, OK, well, what was here before? Right. You know, in, in terms of the, you know, what did it look like before? Right. Before, you know, you decided to build this beast of a stadium um right. and that was quite interesting yeah. and so i i absolutely loved my trip to london uh, i highly recommend folks to not just you know consume soccer in, in its you know most passionate countries uh just for the sake of it and go watch the game but actually go talk to people yeah. like go go to the stores go to the local shops go to the chicken shop go to the barber shop go to the flea market and whatever it is, you know, embed yourself into the local community because like that's what's going to tell you the story. That's going to that's what's going to feed you as far as a soccer fan, um, regardless of where you're from. I want to ask you also about a story you wrote in June. Now, this was in the Tennessee and it was after George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. Um, and you wrote an opinion piece and it, the title was the traumatic effect of lifelong exclusion for black Americans in society. And you talked about your own experience dealing with racism over the years. And the sub headline for that opinion piece read, I'm one of five black newspaper writers covering major league soccer across America. And I'm reminded daily of its thin precedent of blackness End quote. And it, it makes me wonder what what has your experience been like over the last year in that regard it's been a tug and pull uh, on one side you have this relation of being a soccer expert and you get a chance to fit in based off of your knowledge based off of your interests whether it be in american soccer heritage history talking about what's going on in the league in the current day and then on another side you've got this cultural clash where, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, with uh, Silver Spoon. I'm not saying anyone has, but I'm saying that my experience was, you know, working class, lower middle class, um, getting a chance to be around a lot of other black people um, and experience that in sport, but it wasn't soccer. I was the only black. I don't remember. And I know for a fact, actually, that I did not have a black soccer coach. Mm -hmm. I did not have a black soccer teammate. I did not have a uh, even a, a black soccer um, person to look up to in my community. Um, the only people that I had in my experience was uh, my god brother, Jamal Farkerson, who played uh, at Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Bakersfield and then Cal State Fullerton and his father. Um, who was his soccer coach and mm. uh, had his own experience in playing soccer collegiately. And they were the only two that I could truly identify with in this balance of blackness and soccer. And I don't have that when I put on my Tennessean hat, so to speak, or I go into a press box and the language I use or the music I listen to and, uh, what I'm interested in 
outside of just what I write about, I don't necessarily see myself relate in any regard. And that's not something to to be completely discouraged about. And I'm not going to back down from it. And I certainly get excited when I do find something in common apart from just the interest of MLS or American soccer. Um, because I think there's a lot bit, there's a lot more and I find it hard to peel, unpeel my own onion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard to open up and talk about some things that, you know, you naturally don't have to explain uh, yeah. because when you are with you know, a predominantly uh, you know, black environment, you don't have to explain why you like uh, a certain player. You don't have to explain uh, the music or you don't have to explain uh, your favorite players. It's kind of just this understanding of, of how blackness has attached itself onto the game and it's grown its own history. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think even personality, you know, sometimes I have to question if is somebody making fun of me in the press box hmm. or is somebody, you know, actually, you know, telling a joke. It's 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 not laughing at me. It's laughing with me. So uh, sometimes I think culturally I try to find myself in a in a place of stability. And that that's a challenge sometimes to have that stability. How do we get more minorities writing about soccer in the United States? Is, is it simply hire more? I mean, like in, and in the, the established networks of hiring just need to change in terms of who gets considered, who gets opportunities? I think it's a little bit deeper than it's like, what are you hiring them for? What are you going to give them an opportunity to do? Because if you take a look at the media landscape in American sports, I mean, what we're moving towards is not just, hey, I'm writing an exclusive feature about so-and-so NBA player. It's like, no, I want to go talk to him about his sneaker collection. I want to go talk to him about his interest in Napa Valley wineries. Mm-hmm. I want to go talk to him about you know, what he sees in the next you know, five to ten years as far as, I don't know, NBA fashion. Or NFL fashion. I want to go talk to him about you know, how he grew up in this new era of, you know, no longer are you going to a bunch of camps. You can just put out a reel on Twitter and that's how you, you grow your brand. Talk to him about how he grows his brand. You know, mm-hmm. so there, I think there's there's beats and there's stories and there's crevices and there's topics that I think a lot of other uh, black writers and, and black storytellers in, in the American sports landscape are interested in. And I think that's what that's what can pull MLS and at least MLS media forward is, you know, what do you what plate are you putting in front of them? What's on their plate? What is the opportunity at hand? Are you going to give them the same opportunity to write what they want or are they just going to be put in a box and say, okay, give us just these basic elementary terms because we don't understand what you're talking about. Like there's got to be this. There's got to be the next generation of editors, and and I'm talking about newspapers, and I'm talking about traditional media, because that's that's the biggest problem is stubborn, you know, sometimes and largely older editors who want to scoff at soccer and American soccer, and they have this arrogance about them that you think you've checked the checked the box by hiring a soccer writer and and particularly hiring a soccer writer of color and then you want to completely disregard or sometimes uh be lazy in your attempt to want to develop the beat because you don't know 
at, at soccer at all. If the if a hockey expansion team comes into your market and you go absolutely crazy and doing your research to learn more about the game, to learn more about the players and, and who could play for this new team, you know, what are the jerseys, what are the fans saying, this, this and that, and then go to soccer and say, oh, you figure it out or, oh, hey, what's 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 an offsides? What is uh <laughs> what does a cap mean? What does an international cap mean? Uh, like the questions that I've got are absurd mm-hmm. and it's lazy because it tells me that you're asking me as a soccer writer to make sure I know what I'm talking about if I go and cover hockey or football or baseball. But when it comes to soccer, you're not going to do the same. And I think that's another problem. So whether you're black, white, purple, orange or green, you know, when you have that disdain and that disregard, I think that's an already putting up a wall of opportunity for, for soccer writers in general. And so th- there's there's very little expectation for, for black writers to want to get involved in the soccer media game. Now, one story that I've been following, you've been following recently, we've had five MLS teams name new head coaches this offseason. And none of those five head coaches are black. There has still yet to ever be a U.S.-born, non-interim black head coach in the 25-year history of Major League Soccer. There didn't really seem like there was even a search process with Inter-Miami owner David Beckham naming his longtime friend, Phil Neville, the head coach this week down there. Um, When you look at this issue, now we're told that MLS has something like the NFL's Rooney rule, which requires minority candidates to be interviewed for head coaching positions. But the history is the history, and it's pretty shameful at this point. And after all the stuff that we talked about last summer, which gets into so many things, but for all these positions to be filled, still not a U.S.-born black head coach, in MLS history. What is up with that? It just shows me that action is lacking and that all these statements about, you know, going up against and fighting against racism are fake. Like, I I, I didn't appreciate this, this mini uh, battle of who had the best statement. Like, it was some sort of competition and, and, and marketing to try to gain trust for fans and and for, for MLS fanatics alike. Like I didn't, cause I knew something inside me knew that there was not going to be act, you know, action that shows, okay, when it comes to opportunity, we're not looking for equality. We're looking for equity because equality, you could claim that right now, but guess what? Your stool is a lot bigger than my stool. And it shows when it comes to opportunity in MLS, the MLS coaching carousel, because you know, for a city like D.C. and D.C. United, who obviously um, hired a coach uh, this week, you know, that market and given the history, whether it be professional, you know, someone like Eddie Pope, right? Um, one of the best defenders that I could even think about as far as American soccer is concerned. And no, I know he's not an he's a soccer. He, I know he's not a soccer coach candidate, but. The culture and the and the excellence that has come through professionally, collegiately, and even at the youth level with the amount of great players that have come from the DMV area, to think that MLS and DC United didn't think of that and how they could be the first 
how they could be a team that is leading the way, especially, you know, with with the history that it has. It was quite disappointed. Um, and whether it be obviously like Ezra Hendrickson or or other, you know, whether it be Tyrone Marshall or um, other coaches who are assistants or or coaches at lower levels. Um, I it was like I heard of their names a couple of months ago. And then after that, it was a wrap. Like that was a, something cool to get to get traction and say, hey, we're looking at black coaches, you know, come come pay attention to us. And then when it was time to really get down to business, it was like that it never existed. So that's that's disappointing. But I when I heard that there wasn't going to be an American black coach, I wasn't surprised because based off of what happened this summer, I knew that the words they were using were just, you know, they were generic and they were you know, largely what every other person was saying. Um, so they were just trying to keep with the trend. And when the trend went away, they went away. I'm with you. Um, we're winding down here with Drake Hills from the Tennessean covers in Nashville SC. When you look ahead, you know, you just got out of you know journalism school at Northwestern fairly recently, you know, in, in 2019. Um, you're doing good work right now at the Tennessean. What do you want to be doing in the future? Do you do you want to get into television? Are you more of a writer podcaster? <laughs> I actually would like to get into television a little bit, you know, be able to talk about, you know, the stories that we that we were discussing a little bit earlier in terms of diving deep into the community and, and talking with uh, those who have properly added to the culture of a particular club in MLS, um, going, doing deep dives in Atlanta, going to North Nashville, which is a predominantly black neighborhood and doing, you know, soccer stories um, and, and doing a little bit of feature, doing a little feature storytelling. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I see myself spreading my wings a little bit. I would like to and being able to uh, build up some sort of a TV persona, um, yeah, whether it's, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, of course, it, I'm sure Grant know you know all about that, but um, yeah, I would absolutely like I to do that. I think you should. Um, I, I think for me, my biggest test this past year, uh, as you mentioned, coming straight out of Northwestern, I had a bit of a stop uh, at the Arizona Republic and I was covering Phoenix Rising. Um, Shout out to Dollar Beer Nights. That was an interesting experience to witness. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, as soon as I left the Arizona Republic, that's when I came to, to Nashville to join the Tennessean. And my biggest struggle is, and it still is, is being able to introduce even myself to those who are reading my stories, those who are uh, getting a chance to maybe listen to our Plugged In podcast, mm -hmm. which will be returning next month. Nice. Um, so I think camp, being on camera would probably open that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, you know what? I think it would be cool to have a program, to have soccer fans and folks in the soccer world ask the reporters the questions. Mm -hmm. um, I saw this on Twitter, and I'll end with that. Is, um, I believe a reporter that was covering the Minnesota Timberwolves was asking D'Angelo Russell a question, who's a guard, a point guard for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And in, instead of answering the reporter's question, um, D'Angelo says, and I, 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 you know, I want to hear from you guys. Hmm. He says, I want, I want to know what you guys think about this certain topic. Um, 
And I think that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's, and obviously it was, a, it, it was yeah. a pretty, it was a pretty serious topic. It was talking yeah. about Jacob Blake. Right. Um, whether it's serious or, or, or comical, I think it would be cool to have a program that allows reporters to get a chance to be the interviewee. I like it. Drake Hills covers Nashville SC and the soccer beat for the Tennessean. He also co-hosts the Plugged In podcast on soccer, which you should check out. You can find him on Twitter at Live Life Drake. Drake, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. And uh, Skull Ducks, appreciate <laughs> you having me on and shout out John Strong. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Drake Hills as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.